Good morning. Oh, come on. Buenos dias. Good morning, everyone. Well, welcome. If you're a visitor and guest, welcome. I hope we made you feel welcome. And this morning, um, as we take a look at God's Word, I'm excited to come. My name's Jeff. I'm one of our pastors. And we've been doing a series on the parables, the parables, some stories that Jesus told. And a parable is really an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Today, I'd like to talk us through a parable that speaks about economics. You're thinking, man, if I have to come listen to a sermon, then a sermon on economics, I'm, I'm dead already, right? Go to sleep. Well, it's not economics or economy as you might think and have heard before. I'd like to speak about economy from God's point of view and living in God's economy. So I hope I won't bore you completely to death. Let me ask you a question. Are you frugal? Would that be something that would characterize you? Somebody that's thrifty, penny-wise, really tight-fisted with your money? Is that you? Maybe a few of you. And some of you are shaking no. They're being honest and saying no. That's okay. Well, I am. I'm, I'm pretty frugal. It's kind of ingrained in me, deep-seated. Any of you have been around my wife, Aureli, you know she's about 10 times more than what I just explained. <laughs> we actually make quite a good pair. Recently, I was wondering how I came to be that way, or how that was wired in me. I have a brother who's, I have one brother. He's 15 months younger, and when it comes to frugalness and thriftiness, at least growing up, um, you would not think we even had similar DNA. Um, things that we experienced and things that came out of how we dealt with our monies were, were somewhat different. But as I looked and thought about it, you know, our parents, my parents had a big effect on me. And many of you know I've been going through a lot of time with my dad recently and, and his poor health and what's going on with him and with mom being gone so many years now. And, and I think and reflect a lot on what they taught me. And they said things like, you know, if you want something, you know, if you're willing to work hard and focus on, you might have to give up something, but if you'll work hard for it, you'll find a way you'll be able to do it. And that's not complicated economics, is it? You just work hard and go do it. And my dad modeled it for us. Um, we lived in a, a middle income, low to high, somewhere middle, middle of the middle income in Oklahoma growing up. And in our neighborhood, uh, there was a lot of young families. Uh, I grew up in a time where the families that moved into the neighborhood were probably the families when we graduated high school for the most part, except for a handful. That's the kind of neighborhood I grew up in. And I watched and I looked back and I realized that most of the dads in the neighborhood at the time uh, started buying a second car for the family and using loans to do it, and dad refused. Dad said, nope, he's going to walk down to the bus stop half mile and he's going to catch the bus and ride downtown, and then he'll walk the rest of the way onto his office, and he did that right up until my last year or so of high school. And it's his way of saying, you know, I, I think I'll just watch my money a little bit different way. There was a craze that came up 
uh, in the time of my growing up. Um, and it was a craze to have a 10-speed bicycle. Now, if anybody's near my age, you might remember that time frame. But um, in the 70s, 80s, there was this idea uh, to have a 10-speed bicycle. And what's on your screen is one that I wanted. Um, and my parents looked at me and said, well, if you want it, you're going to have to go earn it. You're going to go work for it. And uh, so applying a little of this homegrown economics, uh, I started uh, collecting pop bottles by cleaning up around construction sites. We got a, a massive five cents a pop bottle. And cutting grass for the neighbors, I had to pay dad back for the gas, I think. And then I got a whole dollar fifty for mowing a yard of grass. And then we had a lot of chain, chain link fences that separated all the yards. And to get to that point, cut along the chain link fence, uh, we didn't have the weed eaters. Matter of fact, I'm sure it was somebody from my generation that invented the weed eater because we had to use something like this. I want you to show us, Kevin. It was this manual thing, clipping, and down on your hands and knees as a young teenage boy, 12, and just clipping along the fence line, really hundreds and hundreds of feet by hand. Uh, these were real blister makers, and I'm sure somebody from my generation is who invented the weed whacker uh, because we didn't want to use these anymore. And I could get a whopping 50 cents a yard. Isn't that amazing? Worked hard. Put money together and was able to buy that first bicycle. And you think I'm making it up. I actually am I'm kind of crazy about some things. I found the actual uh, Schwinn Continental owner's manual that I bought from that bicycle in the 1970s. Uh, inside of it, last night I showed Rayleigh, here's the receipt for the bicycle I paid for. I guess it was significant to me, wasn't it? It was very significant. But living in God's economy is different. I was thinking along these lines, and I remember an eighth grade social studies class that I had. Now that's, I mean, wow, Jeff's still got some memories. He can go back that far. But I remembered a class, and in the class, we had a study about world economy and economics and about budgets and how to apply a budget. And our project was to put together a monthly budget that we could live on. And the teacher gave us an income with some assumptions about taxes. And the project involved, after all of her discussions and lectures, that we were to go off on our own and come up with a budget, a monthly budget, and how to do that. I thought, well, that's pretty practical. I know a lot of classes and stuff today don't lean into that. And so we, we put together a budget. And I had to come up, and you we were graded on, did you come up with the right elements that would go on a monthly budget? Does it seem bad from where you're sitting from? But when you're, you know, 14 years old, you're thinking, I don't know what all goes into the budget. But housing, right? So I called. There's an apartment complex that was built at the end of our subdivision. So I called them up and said, how much is a one-bedroom apartment? Got some ideas for that. And then I was starting going through, what do all I need to do? I need to have electricity and, and maybe gas. And, and, and then my, I sat down with my dad, who was actually an electrical engineer for the state utilities company. I thought, oh, I got this in the bag. And so he walked through all the different kinds of things I would need for the utilities and things and what those pricings and, and things would cost. And I put together a budget. Included entertainment, education, uh, some savings. And I got looking, I said, boy, my teacher, she got kind of skimpy on what she gave us for income. I could sure use a little bit more, but I'm frugal. I can think I can make some adjustments, so I adjust the budget because there was one thing left in my budget. And that was something that was my dream transportation, my dream car. I thought, oh, I'm sure I can make room for this. And so I put it in mind... <laughs> It was a 1969 T-top L88 uh, Corvette. 
427 cubic inches, 430 horsepower, four-speed Holley carburetor. Oh, it was my dream car. And I was sure I could do it, and I called up the Chevrolet dealership. And they hadn't talked to my social studies teacher at all because what they needed from a, from a, a monthly payment versus what I could afford, it was totally out of the picture. I couldn't afford it. And I was starting to get some early life lessons. I wasn't about to give up, so I did a little bit more research, and there was a new import car coming in that was kind of sporty. Put that up, Kevin, for us, Opel GT. I thought, I think I can afford this. I did some work. I called the dealership. Here's a 14-year-old. I'm calling the dealerships. There wasn't internet to go and access and do all these online car searches. You had to call people. You had to go down to the dealership. I had to go down and talk to them and find out what it would cost to, to pay for this car. And they helped me, and I put a budget together. I was really skimpy in a lot of other areas, and I presented my project and actually did quite good. You might think, oh, way to go, Jeff. Actually, reality sunk in a few years later when I needed my own car. My dad went car shopping for me, and what I was able to afford wasn't quite the Opel GT. It was the next one. It was the Opel Cadet. Uh, and the only thing similar to the Corvette uh, was it had four tires and uh, a four-speed transmission, uh, and, it had th and it had 105 horsepower. I mean, I've had lawnmowers with more horsepower, I think, than, than that. And uh, it, was, it was quite funny. But that was my first kind of dab into that. And one of the things I learned, there's the haves and have-nots, right? There's the people who have things and who, those that don't. And the people who have things seem to get a lot more attention than others. And it's crazy in our culture, isn't it? Uh, a movie star, uh, a sports figure, uh, someone who's in some kind of political position, uh, we get them on, we get them in front of these talk show hosts, and we listen to them about the value of their opinions, not about their entertainment world, not about sports. Oh, no, we want to ask them about, and we ask all kinds of social issues and cultural issues, and we listen to them and we highlight them because they're in some kind of level of recognition, and we think everything they have to say is important. I find that crazy. But it's really not crazy just to our 21st century. Actually, in Jesus' time, it was very much the same kind of thought. If you had money, if you had wealth, uh, you were considered under God's hand and God's blessing. And people would want to tag along thinking that's where work could be. Or maybe there would be some benefits for them about some wisdom that would come up about how to, uh, how to live their lives. But people with money attracted a lot of attention. Yeah, the haves and have-nots. And today I want to walk us through a parable that struck my attention a long time ago. Um, but before we do, and turn to God's Word, uh, get it handy for you. Matthew chapter 19 and 20, we're going to look at it today. Um, turn on your electronic devices or there's Bibles up here. Would you pray with me? Let's ask God to speak through us through His Word today and be ready to listen. Jesus, you actually challenge people that we would have ears to hear. And I ask, would you give us those ears today to hear what you say through your word as we recount one of the stories that you told, the experience that you had, and how you applied it into life. Would you speak to us today? Would you empower me, Holy Spirit? Would you come? Ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, the setup for the parable I want to do in Matthew chapter 20, if you have a bulletin insert, I've actually captured the 
the parable on the back of the bulletin insert for you. Um, but to understand this parable as I was studying and reading it and what attracted me to it, I realized that in three of the gospel accounts, three of the four, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it has another story that kind of predicates Matthew's parable and it's linked to it. And to talk about the parable and not mention this story uh, would not do it justice. And so the story starts back in Matthew 19 like this. It says that some person came running up and knelt to Jesus, but it wasn't just somebody. I'm in Matthew 19. It wasn't just someone who came running up. The text will tell us it was a young man. Tell us that he was wealthy. Luke tells us that he was a religious leader. And he comes running up to Jesus and he kneels down, is what Mark says and how he explains it. And he kneels down to Jesus. Can you go to the next slide, Kevin? I don't want to get away from the parable and not think about there's some kind of modern day kind of equivalent to this. And he comes up and he kneels down before Jesus. Are you with me? The crowd moves apart. Remember, we like to hear from people who have money, have something to say. And I think the crowd grew quiet for just a moment as this man knelt down and he said, good teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus turns to him, are you with me? And Jesus turns to him and said, uh, who are you calling good? You know, there's only one who's really good. But to answer your question, you need to keep the commandments, Jesus tells him. And looking up, I'm sure he's knelt down, looking up, it, well, what commandments? Which ones? And Jesus looking at him says, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Honor your mother and father. Oh, and by the way, love your neighbor as yourself. And then the, the scripture reference here tells us that Jesus says these words to him and the man said, I've done this. I've obeyed these all my life. And he asked in verse 20, what else must I do? I love what happens in Mark because when Mark tells a story, Mark says that Jesus looked at him at this point. Can you imagine the man? He's there and Jesus looks at him and it says he felt genuine love for him. Just this genuine love and compassion from our Savior towards this man. And Jesus has a way of understanding what people are thinking and what people are holding on to. And what might be in between him and them. And he said, you know what? There's one more thing that you lack. Go sell all your possessions. Give the money to the poor. Then you'll have an inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. And come follow me. Jesus tells him to sell it all. 
And it says he went away sad. Comes up off his knees and walks away sad because he had a lot. God wants his people to be complete, totally dedicated to him and his service. He doesn't want half and half people, half in the kingdom and half in the world. He wants it all. And somehow Jesus saw into this young, rich, religious leader one thing that he lacked. And it's up to us, right, to examine what's in our own hearts. Is there something between us and the Lord? And that's kind of the press of the story. I read a a comment. Actually, it's from an old sermon in the early 1900s from one who was called the Prince of the Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Listen to what he said. The rich man could not go the whole length of his own plan. He would be saved by works, his own efforts, his possessions, his status. Yet he would not carry out these works to the full extent of the law's demand. He failed to observe the spirit both of the first and the second commandments. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't make idols and worship them. He loved not his poor brother as himself. He loved not God in Christ Jesus with all his heart and soul. He thought himself first, but he soon stood behind the last. For he went away sorrowful. Thus the Savior, he tests character. That which glittered so much is not found to be gold. And then Charles Spurgeon says this, this man's great possessions so possessed him that he never possessed his own soul. Is that not awesome? What a thought. His own possessions so possessed him that he never possessed his own soul. Luke tells us, that this rich man walked away not just sad. Luke uses a couple of words. He says very sad because he was, he says, very rich. He's holding on to so much and it's so much harder to let go. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says this, And you can almost sense the the, the rich man walking away. And he turns to his disciples that are sitting there and he says, you know, it's really hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Matter of fact, I'll say it again to you in another way. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now some of use stories about, oh, there was a gate in Jerusalem and the camel had to kneel down and go through it. Most of the modern and most uh, uh, latest can, uh, commentators are saying, actually, no, Jesus is making a very exaggerated point. You're just not going to get a camel through an eye of a needle. And it's really hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because there's a lot between them and Jesus. There's a lot to let go of. And so he turns to his disciples in the next slide. And it says they were astounded in verse 25. I mean, they couldn't believe it. 
they believed much like the teaching those who are rich those who had something were blessed by god and how could jesus be leaning in that they don't have god's blessing man this doesn't make sense jesus what are you talking about and they ask a question then who in the world could be saved i mean if he can't who can obviously he's under god's blessing with all he has and Jesus answers this. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. I love the way Jesus kind of leans into them. But then he, with God, everything is possible. And Peter, he turns to Jesus and said, Master, we gave up everything for you. Right now, what about us? And Jesus says, I, I assure you in verse 28 of chapter 19 that the world's made, when the world's made new and the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have been my followers will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the greatest or the first now will be the least or last then. And those who seem the least important now will be the greatest then. Jesus is saying, you know what guys, there's no hierarchy in heaven. There's no entitlement to the kingdom of God. Earthly rank does not automatically translate into some kind of heavenly rank. There's a big misunderstanding in some circles of faith that these verses are some kind of divine mandate and promise for us. Give it all up now and you'll be blessed. Luke gives us an implication that the blessings would even occur in this world. Aurelia and I have experienced some of that. As we move back to the Northeast, not because we want to retire into our, from our corporate world and, and move close to family, because we're not near any. We're not near either one of our families. It doesn't make any kind of logical sense except God called us here. And you know what He's replaced us with? He's replaced not replaced our family, so to speak. But man, he's added to it. Look at you. With, with passion in my heart, I, I look at you and I say, you're like family to Rayleigh and I. And he's blessed us. But it's not just about that. N.T. Wright said, in order to be complete, you have to be empty. In order to have everything, you must have nothing. In order to be fully signed up to God's service, you must be signed off from everything else. In order to be first in the kingdom of God, you have to be willing to be last. So now we're going to look at the parable in chapter 20. Because it starts like this. For the kingdom of heaven is like this. I can still see the young man walking off in a distance with his head bowed low. And Jesus' disciples, their head's still like, wow, this is, this is something. And Jesus said, you know what? 
where the kingdom of heaven is like this. And whenever Jesus says that, get ready for a ride. And he says this. It's like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and he sent them out to work. Verse 3. At 9 o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. And so they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at 3 o'clock, he did the same thing. At 5 o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some people, more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. And the landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. And that evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the first, with the last, the first. Well, let me stop for a minute, because it's not rocket science to see here that Jesus is appointing the landowner as God. And the workers are those in his kingdom. And it seems kind of interesting to me in this picture that Jesus is starting to paint that the the vineyard landowner is always looking for workers. Up front, later in the morning, at noon, in the afternoon, even to the last hour, the landowner is out looking for people to work in his vineyard. It seems also interesting to me that the landowner must have an abundance of work to be done or a, a certain time frame to get it done with because he wants that work. He has some kind of priorities and pressure. And finally, it's interesting to me, the landowner seems to be surprised at the reaction of people when he goes out and says, what are you doing here? I mean, the work's over there. Why aren't you standing over there waiting, you know? And they wandered off. The order of payment was interesting because it gave everybody who had started first an interesting time to stand around and watch and see what was going to happen. I wonder how he's going to pay these guys. And... The, New, the Old Testament law required they had to be paid that day, if you're wondering. It was a requirement. You have to pay a man's wages, what he earns. And so he starts to pay them. Verse 9, uh, verse 10. When those hired first came to get their pay, oh, I'm sorry, I missed it. That evening he told the fire, uh, verse 8. That evening he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. Verse 9, when those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. They'd been out in the fields an hour. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more. But they too were paid a day's wage. And they, when they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Hey, those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us? who worked in the, all day in the scorching heat? And he answered one of them, Friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? And so those who are last now, Jesus says, will be first then. And those who are first will be last. If you're wondering, the workers actually did a good job capturing our even own world thoughts today and world thinking. If you think the Scriptures are old and don't relate, think about this because 
They're saying things like this, which our world says today, hey, that's unfair. I want mine. I'm entitled to more. I'm entitled. I deserve more. Well, you know what? The world says I missed my chance. So, all right, I'm out of here. Too bad for them. They missed out on me. The world makes claims and starts suing for unfair practices and labor practices. I want more. Jealousy ensues and starts building up. And the world seems to undervalue the work itself and overvalue the reward. Does that sound familiar? This entitlement mentality leads to wrong expectations. In God's economy, compensation and reward are not based on your years of service. Kingdom of God's status is not tied to your earthly status at all. Some who are the first to enter won't be above those who are the last. And in God's economy, especially in context of chapter 19 with the rich man, some who've had everything in this world will have least in the world to come. And some in this world who have very little, who are the least, will have the most in the world to come. God's economy is a lot different than ours. He doesn't reward man in us as we expect. Now some think the parable is a story about how people come to God at different stages of life. And they've built all kinds of analogies about when somebody's young and when somebody's a teen or a youth or a child and when somebody's a little bit later and they're starting their career and someone in the last days of life and they come to know God. There might be some truth and how to interpret the parable that way. Some interpret the parable as, as you're working for the kingdom of God, He will prosper you. He will cause you to succeed. He will cause good things to come to you. And maybe there's some of that that's there that you could pull out. Others seem to interpret this as how the gospel unveiled itself first through John the Baptist early on. And then through Jesus preaching. And then later with the disciples and at Pentecost and, and up into our age today. And maybe there's truth and in interpret the passage this way. But let me offer something else in context of with the rich man and that story. This parable is best understood by grace. The last will be first. And the first last. That's the essence of God's grace. He rewards and blesses us according to His will and pleasure. Not necessarily according to what we deserve. You know, grace, that free, unmerited favor of God, derived from a word that talks about rejoicing, found over 150 times in the New Testament, and takes on some kind of special redemptive meaning for us of God giving us life, something we don't deserve, and God blessing us. God makes that favor available to us. You know, the system of the law is pretty easy to understand. You get what you deserve, right? I think I heard mom tell me that a few times. It still rings in my ears. 
But the system of grace is really foreign to us. God deals with us according to who He is, not according to who we are. It's important really to see that the landowner didn't treat anyone unfairly. He didn't cheat anybody. Hey, you agreed to this. I paid you what we agreed to. He was kind in the right way that he agreed with everyone. And the point isn't all about having the same reward. Obviously, and I don't, from your standpoint, I don't think Jesus' story makes any worldly economic sense at all. And that was his intent. He's giving us a parable about grace. Things that can't be calculated in daily wages. It's like when Jesus then said to Peter, you're privileged to be with me. To be here early. To sit on 12 thrones. But others will come in the kingdom and you must not claim a special place over them. Everyone, no matter when they come in, are equally precious to my Father. Reward in the kingdom, folks, is not dispensed by your virtue of time. Or what you've served. Or what you've done. It's grace extended. It's not based on human economic calculations. Philip Yancey said this, significantly many Christians who study this parable identify with the employees who put in a full day's work rather than the add-ons at the end of the day. We like to think ourselves as responsible workers and the employer's strange behavior baffles us even as it did the original hearers. Yancey goes on, we risk missing the story's point. That God's grace dispenses gifts, not wages. Did you hear me? God's grace dispenses gifts, not wages. None of us gets paid according to merit. For none of us comes close to satisfying God's requirements for a perfect life. If paid on the basis of fairness, Yancey says we would all end up in hell. It's not merely the time that we put in, it's the heart that we put into the time that we have. The kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is all about grace. And so is the service that's connected with it. Our Lord, He doesn't measure up the work we do by our effort or even by the hour. He has His own gracious ways. And the way He rewards through grace are not like any we've ever understood before. Now the parable ends with this saying. That some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. You notice similarity? How he ended the story with the rich man? Back in chapter 19, verse 30. But many who are first now will be last. Many who last will first. You notice that Jesus reverses the order? He kind of bookmarks this story. Connects what happened with the rich man now walking off into the distance with this story about the vineyard and the workers there, and God's great grace towards us and towards all who would come into the vineyard with Him, who would heed His call. 
God's grace. His crazy love revealed in such amazing ways that really doesn't make sense. The first will be last. And the last, first. In the parable, all the workers from the first one's hired to the last are rewarded in grace. And when we're talking of the kingdom of God, there's no partial amount of grace. God's extended grace to us. Not some partial man, but His full love on us. There's three points I'd like you to take out of this sermon today. And this is how we'll close. It's on your bulletin insert. Is it for our sake versus for God's sake? You know, we don't use sake too much. We don't hear it too much unless we hear it used in some kind of wrong way. But when you do it for the sake of something, for the purpose of something, for the reason for something, for the objective of something, for whose purpose are you living your life right now? For whose purpose are you doing what you're doing? For whose well-being? Whose interest? For whose profit? For whose benefit? For whose goal? For whose motive? For whose interest? Is it yours or God's? Who are we serving? Are we serving ourselves? Are we serving God? Is it for our sake? Or is it for God's? I think these are key questions. And it's not a one-time decision. It's something that we filter in all that we do in life. The second point is holding on versus letting go. Remember the rich man? Who owns who? We have to fight this in our culture and world, guys. Does what you have own you? Does what you possess possess you? Is God on the throne of your heart or is something else? Like the rich man, do your possessions so possess you, you don't possess your own soul? Are we holding on or are we letting go? Not just possessions. What about your desires? What about your career? What about your dreams? What about others? Are you willing to put them all before the throne and get everything out of the way between you and Jesus? That's what he's asking. And the last point's this. It's entitlement versus grace. We have a media plethora of telling us what you're entitled to. But the kingdom of heaven's all about grace. No one's earned it. You have no right. You have no power. You have no privilege. You have no prerogative. It's unmerited love. It's kindness shown in an incredible way. Are you willing to become last? For God allowed Jesus to be first in your life. I'd like the worship team to come up. And I'd like you to start thinking about this. Here's the challenge. It's not just me speaking for a little while. These were words that Jesus turned around and had a personal dialogue with His disciples. And if you'll allow it for a few moments, 
Allow Jesus to have a personal dialogue with you. For some of you, it might be taking that step. Do I really have that relationship with Jesus I need to have? Is there something in the way? I need to let go. For some of us, it might be about entitlement. That I, I feel like this happens. This is, what, this is what I get. And you haven't really experienced grace. And for some of us, it might be about, am I doing this for my own benefit? My own purpose? Or am I doing this for God? Let it soak in for a few minutes while they lead us through a worship song. And try to identify who you most closely resemble out of today's teaching from Jesus. Maybe today you've heard God speak to you about grace. About how you can experience it. We had some folks come together and pray before the service. And, and Kevin, do we have any words from that service that might apply today? Uh, so, so this morning I just want to share a couple of... Um, word pictures uh, that hopefully represent uh, an aspect of God's economy. Um, the, the first was this sense that um, maybe some of us feel like our, our glass is kind of half empty. It, it's really low and maybe leaking by the minute. And uh, I, I just believe the Lord wants to um, pour into your glass this morning and fill it up to overflowing. Uh, and then secondly, there was a um, th this picture, th this sense that maybe there's someone here this morning, you feel like uh, a camel. You've either uh, begun or you're about to begin a long journey through a dry and arid environment uh, without, without any provisions. Uh, and, and I believe the Lord wants to uh, refresh you this morning, wants to, wants to give you a, a drink of his living water. Um, anyone brave enough to acknowledge that, that one of those spoke to you this morning? Okay, well, if you do, I, I just encourage you to come up for prayer. Um, if you'd like prayer for uh, any of the things that Jeff mentioned or, or anything else unrelated, we'd love to spend a few minutes praying with you. Sure would. Love to pray with you. Any folks our prayer team can come up. We send you out with a blessing and if you'd like to come up for prayer, as you walk out of the room, if you see someone you feel like God's impressing your heart to pray for them, just reach out and pray for them as well too. Let's do that. Lift one another up. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. We know that You're the great landowner. I thank You that You look for us from the earliest hours even to the last hour that You search for us because You want to show us Your grace. You want us to experience that in all we do. I pray that we would go with your peace and grace in our lives as we walk into this week. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.